Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 213 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And, you know, obviously the big, the big news is still the ongoing collapse of, of FTX and the crypto market and all of that. You know, we did our episode on it. I want to, uh, for, for, for our episodes this week, episodes plural, we're going to do an old, an old fashioned TMK double header where we're going to deep dive into, um, an, a favorite author and thinker of ours who we haven't talked about in a while, uh, who has a really excellent paper that came out last year that is, I think, uh, presciently, uh, and exceedingly relevant for understanding the collapse of FTX, uh, the, the problems in the crypto market, a lot of the activities around FTX, but then broadly, like, what are what are like what are the alternatives? What needs to happen, you know, moving forward if we're thinking about like radical restructuring? So, with all that, uh, we we are getting back to Salty Omarova. Now, we talked a while ago about um, one of Omarova's papers. She's a law professor, does a lot of very excellent work on financial law, uh, was, you know, as, as we've talked about in a previous episode where we spent some time doing another doubleheader on an excellent paper of hers looking at fintech as a systemic phenomenon and systemic risk in the financial markets. Uh, Omarova was also uh, the nominee uh, by Biden for comptroller of the currency, which is the um, the head regulator of chartered banks in the U.S. financial system, and we'll get into what all that kind of means. But you know, in other words, she was you know she knows her shit. You know, both academically has been studying this for a long time. Uh, regulatory knows the ins and outs of regulation and law for finance and for banking, uh, and also big giant thinker, which is, which is why we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this new, this paper that she has that came out last year called the people's ledger, how to democratize money and finance the economy. Because what we need right now is a lot of big thinking. We need big radical thoughts and not just in the kind that are like, you know, kind of, you know, vague inklings of revolution. We, we need that too. Cause that, that, you know, that's that juice that motivates us, gives us a goal to work towards. But honestly, I think, uh, what we need a lot more of right now is like systemic institutional thinking. How do we build new institutions or how do we completely re-engineer, uh, existing institutions in such a way that they become, you know, uh, uh, radically different in their operations and in their forms. I think this is also this, we'll get into this as we go through the, the, the paper, but this links up to some of my favorite kind of thinking and, you know, on the radical left, uh, you know, socialist, communist, anarchist, uh, thinkers who are actually thinking seriously about, uh, the kind of like scientific socialism or institutional socialism, you know, another favorite, uh, and, and friend of the show, Aaron Beninov. I think Aaron Beninov does amazing work, really thinking through the nitty gritty of like, 
what does an institutional scientific approach to building socialism look like beyond the like the kind of you know the prince the political values principles commitments we all have what's that look like on the ground what needs to actually happen uh we've talked about this with people like nick chavez as well you know do some old shout outs to some of our old favorites you know people who are kind of uh, have a have an almost engineering mentality in thinking about their socialism or an institutionalist mentality in thinking about building the future because that's how the future is actually going to be built you know it's one thing to have a big revolution, but what are we going to do afterwards? Or how are we going to set the groundwork for that to happen so that's that's why I think it's worth us spending um a lot of time, you know, two episodes digging deep into this paper by Omarova, The People's Ledger, which is setting out to completely rethink and re-engineer, provide the blueprint for restructuring the Fed, the U.S. Federal Reserve, the central bank of the United States, uh, which you know, taking this at taking the Fed, as it's called, as an institution that can uh, radically restructure our economy uh, and and democratize in a true sense, not in the kind of like bullshit, empty way that the tech sector uses it, but truly put the power of money and control over the creation and flow of money back in the hands of the uh, of a democratic citizenry. Uh, and, and so I, I, re, I bring this up in the context of FTX because this is a lot of the bullshit that, you know, DeFi, uh, claims to be adhering to, uh, claims to be building. This is also a lot of what like FTX was FTX reverse engineered a central bank essentially, you know, and this is what, you know, right before FTX collapsed, they were bailing out. Uh, you know, other DeFi protocols and crypto exchanges and, 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 you know, DAOs and shit like that. They were about, they were bailing out massive parts of the, the DeFi Web3 economy, uh, in part to try to keep it afloat and in part to hide their own improprieties, uh, their own improper dealings. But, you know, we talked about this in our no FTX, our, uh, uh, episode. Where, you know, you got to be on the lookout for people who on one hand want a Glass-Steagall Act for crypto, you know, a kind of uh, a formal sep separation, regulatory separation between uh, commercial deposit taking banks and investment secu uh, security uh, creators and, and, and market makers and bankers, um, you know, as a way of legitimizing it. And you also got to be on the lookout for people who are calling for a, a central bank for crypto to kind of keep stability in the market, to bail out, uh, you know, the, the too big to fail institutions like FTX or, or Binance or, uh, you know, Coinbase or whatever. Got to be on the lookout for people that are essentially trying to recreate the real economy in the fictitious magic money economy of Web3. Look out for that. Deny it. But the other, the flip side of that, you know, because obviously that's the Luddite, you know, what, what are we going to deny? What are we going to abolish? What are we going to smash? The flip side of that is what are we going to, what are we going to build? Andreessen Horowitz telling us it's time to build. All right, well, Omarova's got a brilliant idea for what to build, and it's a completely different, revamped, re-engineered Fed uh, that, that uh, you know, I think 
is at the very least a, a extremely interesting, provocative, and well thought out experiment. Even if we don't agree with everything Omarova lays out here, uh, we have to and should take it seriously. So that's my preamble before we get into the 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 weeds, the nuts and bolts of what is ultimately a, a very long and pretty technical law review article, but we're going to, we're going to lay it out um, because it's, it's absolutely one that's worth engaging with. Right. So I think, well, we can probably start with like a sort of a quick, a bird's eye view an overview of the argument here. Part of it, it this idea stems from an interest in, digital money um, and in figuring out a way to have digit, you know, what, what are the, some of the consequences of digitizing sovereign money and, and what are some proposals that can come out of that specifically out of the CBDCs, the central bank digital currencies. And so Omarova views most of the CBDC proposals as piecemeal ones as, you know, insufficient to the needs and demands of people where she's looking at, how a vast majority, or not a vast majority, a lot of people have bank accounts, but about something like 22% of all households in the United States are either unbanked or underbanked, which means that they can't really get access to things, for example, such as COVID relief checks, right? So, and, and that one of the reasons why they don't get access to these bank accounts is because of the profit-seeking mechanism with banks in which they're more so interested and offering accounts to people that they are going to end up making money uh, from. So she's so she's proposing a structure that would revamp, you know, how deposits are going, or how deposits happen, as well as uh, how the uh, Federal Reserve's investment portfolio ends up looking, as well as the government's intervention, essentially the state's intervention into the economy, managing capital flows, uh, so on and so forth. Right. So I think you know the premise here is by using or you know. Th- really quickly, but you can use CBDCs or at least roll them out and integrate them fully into a system. So you you would be able to then have bank deposits that would be connected to the Federal Reserve Board and these things called Fed accounts. And then this is on one side of the ledger on the on the balance sheet on the liability side, right? This this would allow the Fed to then uh, shift from or and uh, you know, as I said before, the idea is if you're shifting who's actually in control of deposits, right? One thing, a few things you're able to do. One is that you're able to actually give people uh, relief checks. You're also to s- able to save them from excessive fees. You're able to in- ensure that they get lines of credit. Um, you're also able to pull back. Um, you know, one of the many channels of subsidies that taxpayers give banks, right, uh, which has, as she talks about, and as we'll get into the discussion of, you know, these subsidies and these channels and the, the power that banks have over gatekeeping access to credit and access to savings has 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 gone a great deal in helping consolidate financial uh, the financial services and financial industry uh, since the 1990s, right? And created some of the too big to fail actors that we've talked about in a few episodes. Um, and it's one of the structural, one of the, one of the core, like, you know, structural political economies of the system that if we want to undermine uh, some of the logics that ensure they get as large as possible, we have to curtail. Now, this idea, you know, also has a few other you know, connections here are assertions, right? She's talking about how, you know, the, the, the premise here is we want to figure out a way to shift the balance of power from privatized 
or private institutions and actors that can veto individual concerns and interests, right? A bank is not really going to respond to your concerns to still, you know, separated from the public immediately, but in theory, more responsible because they're appointed by elected officials, Federal Reserve. Omarova, I guess, and, and maybe we can then start talking about it, says, okay, so if that's the case, what is the structure of finance today? How are central what, what is the structure of the central bank and its involvement in the economy? And what are the downstream effects of that on banks and on other engines of fi- uh, financial services and credit that people interact with? Or what are the consequences on their lives? And what reforms, what, what outcomes do we want to see? What reforms would make that happen? What are some obstacles in the way of making that happen? Um, and what are ways that we can also use this analysis of reform, structural reform, to have a better understanding also of the system that we have today and some of the unintended consequences or intended consequences that we've been convinced to look away from of this consolidation and of this, you know, a, a really narrow private public partnership, essentially, of running finance connected, as she's talked about before, with the destruction of that boundary that was established in the New Deal settlement of finance, right? Like, what are the, what are the ramifications of that and how do we turn back that tide? Yeah, and before we get into this as well, I think it is worth mentioning. Like the Fed holds this like almost mystical uh, position in a lot of people's minds. You know, if you've spent any time around Ron Paul style libertarians, <laughs> you right. know the Fed, the Fed for them is like you know they 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 equate it to like the Illuminati, basically. Like you know uh, a classic uh, slogan. Of the of the 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 Paulian libertarians is abolish the Fed, you know, get rid of it, right? Because in their minds, they think central bank. They're thinking like George Soros. They're thinking like Illuminati. Like they're autocratic you know, control. You know, like a yeah, cabal, really. Yeah, I mean, they they are thinking uh, a half step removed from like you know a cabal of Jewish bankers uh, controlling the global economy. Like, let's be real. Like, that's where a lot of that stuff is, whether they know it or not, is based in. Um, and a lot of it is just internalized ideological rejections of the idea that the the government uh, should have any role to play in the economy, let alone like uh, it's a misunderstanding of what role the Fed currently plays in the economy, which is largely as a handmaiden to uh, Wall Street and the financial system, as we'll get into, um, but also a misunderstanding of the potential role uh, that the Fed should play and, it, and its changes, especially over COVID as Omarova lays out in terms of like it's, uh, you know, its balance sheet has grown massively during COVID um, because it was put in charge of things around, you know, bailouts, uh, special loans for small businesses, you know, all of that stuff, you know, stuff that, uh, you know, TMK, like a lot of podcasts are kicking ourselves for not getting some of them PPE loans or whatever. (laughs) And and, and all that shit was just in a, man, they can wipe that shit off the slate and can't wipe student loan off. Like, come on, yeah. bro. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have so, to keep the economy going, my guy. You know, that's. I know. That's well, I should have been listening to all them uh, <laughs> hustle grind set TikTokers <laughs> right. telling every person to become an LLC. Like, we should you know, have. 
made us an, uh, we should have been a sovereign citizens. When, when you go to college, you need to create an LLC and pay for your tuition through the LLC. So then you can get that shit wiped away in the future as a small business loan. You just invest in it. Is that one of the capital. tips? Is that one of the tips people do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I wanted to I, sidebar, but I dev, now I'm very curious what happens to those people. Do they ever get hit with crazy tax bills? Because some someone just like looks over their record and it's like this is fraud. <laughs> what are you talking about? They are absolutely playing a real dangerous game. Taking uh, the most uh, dangerous game. Taking the, you know uh, this is not financial advice. Financial advice <laughs> from TikTok. <Yeah>. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Um, but <laughs> back to the Omarova. So I just want, it was worth, it's worth bringing that up and we'll get into this as well, where Omarova also just kind of dismisses a lot of the, uh, rejections of, as we'll get into like the, uh, asset side of, of, uh, the Fed Reserve's balance sheet, according to this like new, uh, Fed that she's laying out is a lot of it is just based on internalized ideological rejection that the state should play any role in the economy. And, you know, honestly, uh, one, well, one, if you believe that and you listen to TMK, um, well, welcome to your first episode, uh, and we'll be seeing you never, um, because, you know, I, I, I don't think, uh, I think TMK listeners are, are don't don't hold that kind of internalized rejection, but instead are open to, um, you know, admittedly provocative, systemic, holistic arguments for rethinking an institution that sits at the core of the financial system and the economy, but does so in a way that, uh, as I think Omarova very convincingly lays out, should be doing a lot more. Than it currently does, um, and could and should be doing it in a way that, as you also, as you just said, Ed, uh, like the incentives for the current financial system are so perverse and so perverted um, that it's hard to say that it's hard to call them financial services, right? Because who are they serving? Certainly not us uh, in any meaningful way, and. You know, this is really the, uh, the point that Omarova is, is trying to, to, uh, push us towards, right? Is, you know, I'll just, you know, uh, briefly quote from her, from the, the beginning of the paper where she says, it is especially important to recognize that taking a more limited piecemeal approach to reform is not necessarily the most prudent or practically feasible option. As this article shows, there is an inherently symbiotic relationship between central banks' assets and liabilities as tools of financial and economic statecraft. Translating this insight into policy requires an integral and proactive approach to restructuring both sides of the central bank's ledger. And we'll, we'll see this as well as we go through because she is really talking about a complete revamp of the assets and liability side of uh, the central bank and, 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 you know, not these like piecemeal tweak around the edges kind of way, but a complete restructuring creation of a new institution in the shell of the old. Um, and I, I think she convincingly argues as well that anything, anybody that under the name of prudence uh, or under the name of, uh, of pragmatism pushes for a more piecemeal, limited, uh, you know, tweaking around the edges approach 
they are instead, whether they know it or not, and oftentimes they know it because they're lobbyists who are paid to do this, they are standing in the way of any kind of major uh, uh, restructuring of our economy and instead are simply trying to, uh, like the birds that eat barnacles off of a well, they are servicing the existence of an economy that has grown too bloated, too big to exist, um, and and so uh, what that requires is a com- is is uh, a com- you know not picking the barnacles off, but completely harpooning that well. We gotta go Moby Dick on the financial system as it exists. Uh, you know that we 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 gotta we gotta uh, you know it's 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 a it's a predator, um, and we we gotta put it down. And I think right. Omarova's paper really goes a long way towards talking about and laying out in detail a way that we might do go about doing that. And so honing in on those two and two parts, right? Talking about the balance sheet and the liability and the asset side to also hammer home some of the points, you know, that we'll dive in here, right? The goal here is on the liability side, you want to make it easier for people to be connected into um the, into the financial system, both when it comes to savings and depositing, but also for extension of credit, right? But as she said, you can't just do that in of itself without a larger vision or that it would be wasted to do that without a larger vision. And that this larger vision is that if we it is gets back to what she keeps coming back to, and as, as you talked about, Jathan, right, which is redefining and redesigning how modern finance works and shifting it away from the capture and the central logic, which is, you know, profit-seeking and excess returns pursued, and taking seriously this idea or this impulse of democratizing finance, right, where instead of the franchise system, right, where you have the Fed acting on behalf of the public to ensure that there's, you know, quote, monetized full faith and credit of the United States, right? Instead of having this sort of system where the Fed is is helping, uh, you know, lend, through lending, uh, prop up the liquidity uh, of, of the system, right? And ensuring that the supply of credit money is fine and helping allocate capital flows here, helping uh, the private entities and financial institutions, namely banks, operate. And instead of solely doing that and then having on the other side of that, right, on the asset side being just the sort of the debts that are acquired in the process of providing these loans, doing these bailouts instead of doing that what if we had a system where there was actually a core tenu- like link between you know what people want their economy to look like and do and themselves uh, and the central bank and so what if the central banks was not solely acting in like the name of this public ultimate public good by as a you know by backstopping private entities, but instead was restructured to prioritize, in one way or another, public entities and public individuals and public populations. And so that to do that, that's what will that's what the people's ledger would be, instead of it being a bank's ledger sort of thing, that we would have a system that could direct investments, manage the economy, 
incentivize or disincentivize various activities in the economy that are more aligned with the interest and the needs of the general population and not the needs and the interest of a specific class of investors, um, you know, and financiers. And that means, you know, again, we're getting rid of bank deposits or private bank deposits and bringing it into central bank. But then again, as we talked about here, and as you talked about, and as you know, as I'll probably mention later on, right? This is fodder for conspiracy theory stuff. The idea that bringing in anything more into the central bank is upending the control of individuals in their own autonomy, and we'll get into a little bit about like the like the idea behind that, and 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 how it grates against, I guess, or why the libertarian, why the libertarian capitalist would grate against it. But I still think it's like you can have, or you can probably explore playing with the central bank if you're not a libertarian capitalist, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and still pursue um, greater autonomy for people. <laughs> Absolutely. When people react like negatively to the nationalization or socialization of some service that is largely, you know, controlled by the private sector. So, you know, banking, for example, I've also seen it with like Twitter, right? Where people are like, you know, oh, right. well, you can't like, you know, turn Twitter into a public utility, even though it like functionally, like people kind of treat it as like a public utility, as a public service. You can't do that because what, you know, Twitter is a global thing. Like what company is, you know, is it what government's going to, you know, run it? Is it the U.S. government? Well, you know, what about all the other countries that run it and stuff? It's like, you know, or, or all the other you know places in the world that use Twitter, you know, it's like, and we have, and, and we have good reason to be suspicious of like things getting rolled into a state that, uh, especially a state that maybe, you know, uh, like the U.S. fluctuates so wildly, uh, depending on who's in power, uh, uh, you know, does a lot of very evil uh, things, uh, is highly undemocratic in a lot of ways. Um, we should absolutely be skeptical of that. I also think the reaction, though, or the un or the the thing that is never uh, goes uh, said, you know, is often unsaid, is that um, implicitly that things are run okay now. <laughs> you know that like you know if you bring right. in, well if you socialize twitter or if you as we'll talk about you know through the omarova paper if you expand the role and power of the fed by taking powers away from the private banking industry well well that's putting too much power in 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 the state or that's centralizing too much power into one institution or one agency and it's just like what do you think we live in now like what do you think the world exists now that that because it's privatized, that means that it's uh, more susceptible to influence from consumers in the market or because it's privatized that it's not uh, also highly centralized and controlled in a top-down way. Like, you know, like everything we know is uh, saying that we, we, if we, uh, by all measures, live in uh, uh, among the worst possible <laughs> uh, conditions and ways of organizing services, uh, utilities, goods, you know, uh, all of that in the world, why why work so hard to preserve that status quo at the you know in the in fear of uh, of what could be different, right? That like what could be different might right. operate in the same way. You know, old wine poured into new bottles, okay, um, but it could operate in a very in a radically different way as, as well. So you know, all that's to say is that I think a lot mm -hmm. of a lot of times the people that are uh, the quickest to 
knock down any suggestions of alternatives are also implicitly the quickest to uh, preserve the status quo because it's like, you know, better, better the devil, you know, um, which to me just never really strikes me as a, as a, a convincing argument. Um, and quite to the contrary, you know, really open our eyes to how truly awful a lot of the way the society is organized today is, then shouldn't we uh, really be scrambling for anything new. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that's the thing, right? To their to their credit, on some level, there's an understanding that, like, these sort of proposals, anti, maybe not anti-capitalist, but they offer changes to the capitalist political economy that would be devastating to some groups and confusing to others. And uh, because you're proposing that the Federal Reserve should not just manage things through its discount window lending program where it's uh, where it, you know offers liquidity at you know discounted rates right at, at lower than regular rates um so that they have access to easy money but alternatively by managing other parts of the economy by increasing um interest rates right by increasing them so that it's harder to borrow money so that you can maybe spur firms to lay off workers and using that to try to you know then affect cost of goods or how much money is chasing itself you know like the fed can do broad things and a lot of things with interest rate management but Omarova is interested in introducing new institutions and practices and channels so that we can pursue other things in a more targeted way and a much more ex- and in in what would amount to more expansive and uh, interventionary ways different in that you know one of the, on the other side of this she's also proposing that we create new powers for the Federal Reserve that would allow them to, you know, have new asset holdings that could then be used to help spur the creation of public entities, right? That you redesign how the discount window loans are, are uh, uh, given to institutions. You think about how securities are issuing um, uh, or securities are issued by these uh, by existing or quote newly created public instrumentalities for the purposes of financing large scale public infrastructure projects. Right. So thinking about how we you know let's just literally fund infrastructure municipal projects. Let's figure out finding uh, financing or funding mechanisms for them as well uh, using the central bank instead of relying on. Uh, in some intermediation between the locality and and a uh, regulated uh, private financial institution, um, as well as combining all of this together with like having the Fed have a greater ability to stabilize financial markets, maybe get a hand or handle on speculation and and what's going on in secondary markets somehow. Right, all of this combining into the ability for the Fed to have. The ability to let to provide credit for productive uses, right? If you remember in our New Deal settlement episode, we talked about how a lot one of the issues Omarova has and has talked about at length is how much capital goes towards the secondary markets where you're generating and synthesize where you're generating new assets, synthesizing them from other ones where you're. Um, allocating capital and pursuing funds, not really to produce things, but to grab claims to debts, right? And to other, um, and to other sort of instruments or, or, ins- or claims or bets and so on and so forth, right? You're, you're, you're spending a lot of capital and not on actually insuring 
that the productive economy grows and sustains itself and that new enterprises are pursued, whether that be infrastructure, whether that be businesses, so on and so forth, you're instead spending it on speculation. And that this goes against what she talked about, that New Deal settlement, right? So uh, the idea here being if we redesign how the Fed's balance sheet looks on the asset side and the liability side, we can in, we can you know ensure that we have a better understanding of the monetary policy choices, how they affect the rest of the economy. Um, we would then have an ability to create you know pools of capital that can be allocated to help the productive economy. Right, we would have greater transparency with this balance sheet. Right, um, in a way that we don't have today, which means that we'd also be able to have if you have this greater transparency and this greater delineation, the public at least has a mechanism or, you know, it's easier to ascertain the outcomes and the imperatives that are going on and changing them. Right. They're like, I think one example is if this recently is just the, the massive debates that go on quite regularly about still to this day about inflation and the, and the contribution um, of inflation from various causes, whether it's from the greed of corporations that are enjoying highest um, profit margins ever, whether it's supply chain crises, whether it's, um, you know, the strength of labor, relatively speaking, you know, and, and the role in which the Fed's decisions do and don't accelerate, deepen, intensify, or undermine any of these things. So instead of having these really muddled, you know, intense um, debates where people are either uh, lying so that they can advance their own political agenda or having to having to hedge a lot because the, it's not entirely clear and we're entering the realm of, you know, arguments, inference, uh, political assertion, you know, whatever, you know, it, it would be a little bit easier if we could have clear delineation of what the Fed was doing, what the consequences were, what instruments we can literally grab onto and move if there were more of them to just than just interest rate management. Right. And giving us more room to lobby for specific outcomes, which I think also ideally would mean maybe, you know, it depends. Uh, maybe it would be good for some or bad for others, right? But it opens a conversation then about what the Federal Reserve's own insulation from the political system should look like. Uh, so restructuring the Fed, democratizing this engine of the of the economy, allowing it to generate more and allocate more financial resources, shifting the primary banking sector, the shadow banking sector capital markets, the general public, right? These full these reforms would massively undermine um, the uh, more odious effects of uh, the the sec on the secondary markets that you know Omarov has talked about at length, right? And that we and, and that we, we talked about in that last episode, but also again create more institutions, more stability, more transparency, and more involvement of the public, right? So I think that's sort of like the general premise here, right? The article is looking to offer large reforms, propose an alternative vision, um, articulate some of the limitations to that vision being realized today because of the system we do have, the consequences of the system we do have, and how wasteful and odious and harmful it is. And, and, and I think making from there a sort of like forceful argument and persuasive one that, you know, like at the very least, reforms like this should be considered 
or structural reforms to the Federal Reserve System instead of clinging to it and then working with what it gives us after the fact. All right, let's let's get into the nuts and bolts. I mean, we've been we've been providing a a, a kind of high level overview of a lot of this um, for for quite a while now. You know, it's it's, it's big, it's a big topic, but uh, so it's worth it's worth that that time. But let's get into the 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 nuts and bolts of of what this actually looks like, and also. Uh, just for for listeners who maybe want to go back, you know, because we do keep referencing our previous episodes talking about Omarova, uh, and in particular her paper called New Tech versus New Deal fintech as a systemic phenomenon our episodes on that are 177 and 178 um so a, l- a little while ago uh is when we got into that so you know it, that's if you if you want some to to re-listen refresh um you know you're curious uh you know that that's where to go for that but let's get into the the nuts and bolts of like just quickly speed run like how the Fed works now, what its balance sheet looks like now um, under what's called the franchiser uh, model uh, and then spend a uh, much longer, of course, talking about the revamped asset side and liability side of the the new Fed balance sheet that Omarova lays out. So. I'll just I'll just actually quote um, a little bit from Omarova here, uh, where she's you know laying out like how the the Fed works now, which is this uh, you know franchise finance as she calls it. So the kind of logic of the system, the operations of this system, she says, quote. Contrary to the widespread misconception, banks do not simply intermediate between private savers and borrowers by lending to the latter what the former have previously deposited. So in other words, right, like a bank is not a big piggy bank where like, you know, people go in, they put their money into uh, deposit accounts. All that money gets sloshed around into one big like Scrooge McDuck vault. uh, And then when somebody comes to get a loan for a house or a car or a small business, something like that, uh, the loan officer goes to the big Scrooge McDuck vault, takes out the amount that they're loaning from all of the big pool of money that people have deposited, and then loan that out plus interest. Right? Like that's not how it works. That's that's that 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 is a a very simplistic. Uh, way of how banking works, and we live in a very complex financial system. Um, so Omarova goes on to say, quote, in practice, banks create deposits when they extend loans to creditworthy customers as simply the liability side entry offsetting the newly created asset on the bank's balance sheet. The real key to the spendability of these newly loaned funds as deposit account bank money is therefore not their fictitious deprivation from some privately pre-accumulated capital, but an, but an act of the sovereign, the Fed accommodation and monetization of bank-created private liabilities. It is an institutionalized pre-commitment by the Fed to recognize and support the continuous clearing and settlement through the public payments infrastructure that the Fed administers of payments drawn upon deposit accounts maintained with publicly licensed banking institutions. What this means, in other words, is when... 
a bank extends a loan. They're not doing it by uh, pooling out from the big Scrooge McDuck vault money that other people have deposited. When a bank extends a loan, they are just creating a new asset on their balance sheet, um, the loan. The loan is an asset for the for the bank because it's something that is owed to them, uh, right? And they're Cre- and in that they're creating a, 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 a liability on the balance sheet, um, which is that deposit, right? To kind of offset it, to keep the balance sheet balanced. Uh, and so, you know, they're, in other words, they are creating money. Um, by doing this, right? By loaning out, uh, uh, money, the bank is actually creating money. They, the, the Fed has the money printer, but they only turn it on and they only deliver what the, what the money prints to fed, federally chartered banks, right? And so the, the Fed, then here is, you know, committed to that continuous clearing and settlement. In other words, the stability of the financial system to ensure that when uh, people go to pull out the money they've deposited, the money is there, uh, that when, you know, people want loans and their credit for credit, their credit worthy people for credit worthy purposes. Well, the bank has money to loan out because all these things are important for growing the economy and maintaining the stability of the financial sector. And so the fed is then, uh, kind of acting as a, as a guarantor for the activities of the private banking system. And of course, as part of this license, you know, the bank charter, um, there's a bunch of, uh, requirements here around like mandatory reserves, capital buffers. Importantly, we live under a fractional reserve system. And so banks never have to have the amount on hand that is actually in their, on their deposits, uh, you know, their liability side of the, uh, balance sheet, um, there's also restrictions on the bank's asset portfolios. They have to do regular reporting and all these things. But in return for uh, adhering to the rules of the bank charter, they get what Omarova calls privileged access to public accommodation, right? In other words, the bank charters get privileged access to the central bank, to the Fed Reserve, through these, uh, you know, deposit windows. So, you know, uh, uh, you know, high, you know, discounted, uh, interest rate loans that are only, you know, from the Fed that are only accessible to banks. Banks have accounts at the Fed Reserve. So you can think about the, the Fed as like, it's a central bank, but it's also a meta bank. It is a bank for banks. Um, so banks have accounts at the, at the federal reserve, right? But, but currently only these fine, you know, these chartered financial institutions, um, have access to the, the privileges of, uh, and the powers of the fed reserve. Although of course, as we, uh, as we'll get into, uh, you know, uh, later in the article, um, the, this privileged access to the public accommodation, you know, the Fed Reserve, uh, has grown far beyond, uh, kind of, you know, tr- you know, bank, uh, you know, traditional bank charters, right? Like, you know, non-bank financial institutions, like securities firms, derivatives dealers, asset managers, um, and a lot, and the other participants in the very large and growing, 
capital markets and quote unquote shadow banking sector um, have now all become what uh, Omarova calls de facto franchisees that issue and multiply public credit money alongside commercial banks. In other words, you have a bunch of non-bank uh, financial institutions which are taking advantage of the privileged access to the guarantor of the Federal Reserve, largely through um, the breakdown of financial regulations that are supposed to keep sep these separations intact, and thus the, uh, the, the very large acquisitions and consolidations of uh, you know, financial banks, chartered banks by these big non-financial or investment uh, uh, institutions. And we'll get into that that this is a massive problem for the stability of the financial system, but also the incentives um, that motivate the financial system and also uh, the, the kind of revamp of the Fed that Omarova lays out is explicitly and intentionally meant to curtail that in a very serious and radical way. But so this is, that's, that's the kind of the financial system we live under with the Fed, right? Is this franchisee, the, the Fed gives a franchise to chartered banks. And as part of that, in, in this franchise model, the, the sovereign public, right? The Fed Reserve issues and modulates the supply of, uh, this credit money, right? Money issued in the form of credit loans. Uh, Omarova wants us to go further than the Fed just merely issuing and modulating the supply of this money, um, which then banks choose how to distribute, how to allocate that money, right? They choose who gets loans. They choose how uh, deposit taking by from customers is used to subsidize um, other high-risk activities, especially because deposits have federal insurance on them. And so, you know, this is to prevent things like bank runs, but it also has created moral hazard for banks where they have, uh, you know, a big pool of, uh, of money they get from, uh, deposit, you know, people depositing their checks into, into bank accounts that the bank then takes and uses for other high risk, uh, activities. Uh, this is, if this, this is exactly what FTX uh, did with Alameda. You know, this is why at the beginning of the episode I brought up FTX. There's a lot of parallels here um, that, like, you know, uh, FTX and crypto economy in general kind of did a speed run on the last, like, 150 years of, <laughs> of the financial <laughs> sector uh, and, and, you know, and, and crashed because of it. But Omarova is arguing that the Fed should go further than merely issuing and modulating the supply of credit money for private banks to then control. Instead, the Fed can and should allocate the critical quantity of that vital resource of credit money in the uh, issued in the economy, as uh, Omarova puts it. So what, what this looks like then... Uh, just very, you know, very quickly, like what the what the Fed's balance sheet currently looks like, right? So on the liability side, uh, the Fed's balance sheet largely consists of, you know, the U.S. paper currency. Of course, it holds a lot of currency. Um, you know, uh, the the reserve accounts of commercial banks. So you know. Commercial banks have to have, as I, as I've said, you know, a reserve, a fractional reserve, but a certain, a certain amount of the 
liabilities that they have on their balance sheet, they need to have money in reserve to cover that, right? To prevent things from like bank runs completely collapsing so that people actually get their money uh, and and prevent these kind of liquidity crunches as well uh, that you know, are taking out crypto um, companies left and right. But banks don't just hold that reserve. It's not a pinky promise of like, yes, we pinky promise that we have X percentage of our liabilities and currently in reserve uh, in the big Scrooge McDuck vault. No, that that stuff, that those reserves are kept in accounts at the Fed Reserve. As I said, commercial banks have accounts at the, the Federal Reserve, a bank of banks. Um, and so, you know, uh, the liability side of the Fed also consists of other li- uh, of other things like repo, swap line liabilities to dealer banks and foreign central banks. Some pretty technical stuff that, honestly, I, I don't think we need to get into, like, the details of, like, the repo market and the commercial paper and all that. It's not really super important for our broader purpose here, although uh, Omarova does get into this in, in, in her paper, of course. The, I mean, the, in a broad sense, that's 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 the 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 liability side of the fed uh and so you know a lot of this is starting to change as we'll get into with like covid actually like really drastically expanded the liability uh and asset you know sides of the of the fed reserve which provides the uh, you know omarova's groundwork for why why not make it even bigger and and change its purpose uh in doing so uh, as as Omarova says in the post two thousand eight era, uh, this narrowly restricted structure of the Fed's liability has been increasingly subject to criticism along of uh, three principal lines. And so, you know, there, in other words, there's already kind of criticism um, uh, underway of how the balance sheet currently exists at the Fed. For example, uh, Ed brought up uh, uh, like interest rates, right? Like the Fed Reserve kind of does. A lot of monetary policy, but it does so in very, very blunt ways. It only has a few tools at its disposal. One is changing interest rates, um, and, and another is through things like quantitative easing. In other words, you know, putting more, you know, putting money uh, into the economy to try to, uh, uh, you know, ease the, you know, p- provide more leeway, uh, more credit. Uh, you know, juice the economy, make it burn a little hotter. Um, but these are all very blunt kind of uh, uh, functions or, or tools that the Fed has um, that still largely rely on and secure the position of private financial institutions um, as really being the controllers of the economy, the planners and distributors and allocators of uh, this of these resources, money uh, in the economy. Let's just jump real quick to the asset side, right? Like, you know, of the Fed Reserve before we then can really lay the groundwork for uh, what, you know, what's new, um, what, what we want to change, uh, or what Omarova's blueprint for a new institution looks like. The asset side, uh, the bulk of the Fed's assets traditionally, uh, as Omarova, Omarova lays out, consist of treasury bonds uh, and so-called agency securities, or low-risk bonds issued by fev- federal government agencies and government-sponsored enterprises. Um, you know, the Fed also has things like 
gold certificates, uh, you know, uh, special drawing rights, which are kind of these agreements with the International Monetary Fund, uh, foreign currency, um, discount window loans, uh, and other other of these assets. The, these are all. Uh, kind of tools that the Fed uses its, you know, asset portfolio as a means of performing, you know, traditional monetary policy, um, in, in the economy. But however, since the 2008 crash, um, some of these tools have also been used in pursuit of credit allocative tasks and so not merely like maintaining stability in the economy, but growing the economy, pumping money into the economy. So like, you know, the, the Fed has gone under multiple rounds of quantitative easing, you know, just for example, under what's called QE3 or the third round of quantitative easing that the Fed engaged in, uh, in, in the fall of 2012, the Fed uh, does this quantitative easing not by like just you know throwing money into the economy, although it does you know do this occasionally in the form of what's called helicopter jobs, but largely by buying stuff in the economy. And so, like under quantitative easing three or QE three, the Fed purchased a committed to purchasing eighty five billion dollars per month in mortgage related assets in order to maintain a floor under housing prices, right? Uh, and, and so this was a direct continuation of the Fed's massive emergency lending and liquidity support programs uh, in response to the crisis of 2008. And so in effect, this turned the Fed into a market maker of last resort, not merely a lender of last resort, but they were creating a market for these mortgage-backed securities uh, or mortgage-related assets uh, in order to keep the economy propped up and prevent it from uh, collapsing. But they were doing so at the rate of $85 billion per month of purchasing. So, you know, this is, uh, uh, as Omar overlays out, right, these large-scale crisis-driven interventions explain the remarkable growth in the size of the Fed's balance sheet. So the idea that the Fed's balance sheet can, can be large, that it can have both a lot of assets and a lot of liabilities uh, is not new uh, and has been the case for the last 15 years uh, and, and going uh, that it, it keeps that the Fed is growing uh, massively and rapidly, but it's largely doing so in response to crises brought about by the, the financial system in 2008, for example, or other exogenous crises brought about by like COVID. Uh, and what it means is that the Fed is, is operating, uh, in the realm of, uh, direct credit allocation and distribution. More and more so it is operating as a, a giant, a gigantic market maker. Uh, you know, not, you know, not merely uh, creating stability in the financial system, but really creating a financial system where one uh, is collapsing or doesn't exist. Um, and so a lot of, you know, this is, ba you know, a lot of this is providing evidence for Omarova to be like, it's, it's not insane. It's not unprecedented to think that the Fed, uh, its powers and its balance sheet can grow. It is. It is growing massively. The Fed has, you know, 
a, a massively growing uh, balance sheet uh, and massively growing powers in terms of direct interventions into the economy. And so if that's, if that's already the case, if that's the trajectory we're on, if that's the logic we're on, if that's already happening, then why shouldn't we uh, harness it um, for, for socially beneficial purposes rather than allow it to uh, go either uh, unguided or guided by the maintaining the stability of a financial system that is uh, inherently crisis-prone uh, and inherently uh, and growingly antisocial in its uh, allocation and distribution of resources. That's the speed run on kind of like the Fed as it currently exists. So, Ed, I'm going to throw it over to you to kind of give us give us an extended teaser of what's to come in terms of like what uh, uh, Omarova is laying out for this new blueprint of and of a of a new Fed uh, a new Fed balance sheet. Give us an extended teaser of what that looks like. Um, and then we will get much deeper into it in the premium episode uh, of the of the podcast. Well, I think a good preview of the blueprint is quickly going through that next section where she talks about the limits. Because using COVID-19 as an example of the limits of the franchiser model also gives insight into things that were beyond the traditional confines that worked, but that they worked not because they were connected. There, there are things that you can do beyond the confines of a traditional system that worked because they went beyond the confines and also suggest that the traditional system, which you pushed against, does not work, right? The Fed assuming new powers or creatively using powers to salvage an economy where the, because of the COVID lockdowns, there was high level of unemployment, right? There were supply chain shocks. There were business closures. There was the threat of a real, you know, of a brewing economic crisis that the Fed then mobilized some of its powers, both normalized ones and traditional ones. Normalized ones, of course, referring to the, to the ones where it was able to take a, a, a more interventionary role in, in, in various market segments or help create new market segments or help sustain new market segments when they otherwise wouldn't have been able to be. And then traditional ones were referring, of course, to you know, interest rate management, at least in the tail end of, the, of this phase of the pandemic. Right. So the Fed was was using right the lender of last resort and the and the sort of slowly developed newly normalized market maker of last resort um, powers and taking them into new dimensions. Right. It was uh, you know as Omar Override began massive direct purchases of corporate debt. It opened a, line, a credit line to municipalities, right? And these were allowing the central bank to do that, to do the allocation, the credit allocation, right? And bringing them into public view when they're usually obscured. And at the same time, right, this also happened at the same time that there were debates about, okay, how do we get every American money, stimulus, funds, uh, and what are the best vehicles for doing so? Do we have bank accounts at the post office? Do we have bank accounts at central bank? What are the ways in which we're going to be able to get the money to them, right? So there are two things here that COVID-19 emphasized the limitations 
well, one, the power of allocation, but also the limitations of it within the traditional franchisor system and, and why there was a need to go beyond it for the crisis, but also give rise to, because of those limitations, the need to also have other ways of directly um, giving funds or money, you know, to the public, right? Not just individuals, but the businesses. And so thinking about these and the pressures on, on what they have for the, the feds, Fed's balance sheet and how we move towards the, a new system that isn't franchisor ledger, but people's ledger is, is really important here. There are two sort of beats uh, to hit on really quick. There's the asset side, right? And the liability side, of course, right? And so the asset side talks a bit about, you know, in here, she's, she's trying to think through how the COVID 19 crisis wasn't a financial crisis, but it was one that immediately had consequences for the financial system respond and, the responses were ones that touched on the financial system and also tried to use the payment system to distribute funds to public entities, to businesses, right? Um, and so the balance sheet of the Fed became the way in which you were injecting emergency relief into this economy. Quote, with the Treasury providing first loss protection, the Federal Reserve established several new lending programs to facilitate the flow of credit to U.S. companies and certain U.S. Uh, certain public entities. Uh, programs that resembled what was going on in 2008 or 9, but again, just the core thing being injecting liquidity into the system, ensuring that the balance state, uh, sheets and the stability is working, uh, and that there's not a general collapse. So the Fed created two corporate credit facilities. There's the primary market corporate uh, credit facility and the secondary market corporate uh, credit facility. These programs are present in that they allow funds and liquidity to be given to companies that are not in distress, but in the moment of a crisis where some contagion or some other exogenous factor might put them in a situation where it makes sense for them to lay off. A lot of people, right? And so they're providing liquidity by, by buying up securities, um, you know, whether that's uh, exchange traded shares, whether that's corporate bonds, but they're also giving corporations access to government funding that allow them to run during the pandemic, right? These are the two ways and these are the two credit allocation mechanisms created, which allowed government money and central bank money specifically to flow more directly to the public in a way that's outside of uh, what the Federal Reserve might normally do. Right. And additionally, there was a, a municipal lending facility which allowed state and local governments to handle the massive lockdowns that were happening, the mass employment that was unemployment that was happening by getting access to capital that would still allow them to continue operations, right? So, you know, they were able to borrow directly from the Federal Reserve with some, with some you know, conditions aside, their eligibility requirements, their high interest rates, and there were other conditions that, that narrowed the ability and the efficacy of the program, right? And, and opened it up to criticism, as, as Omar uh, points out. But at, the, but at the same time, this was the first time that the Fed had kind of you know, offered a, a credit facility to support municipal bond markets, right? And again, use its balance sheet as the platform here. Um, uh, to back the state and local government. So these programs, you know, she, she assigns them under this idea of whatever it takes, right? Whatever it takes to prevent an economic disaster, allocate capital however you can so that operations can continue as usual. 
But they also suggest, well, one, of course, that the franchiser model is not the reason why that that excess these these credit facilities were rolled out because a lot of these credit facilities were novel programs, right? That were offering money in channels that it wouldn't typically do so. But that they also, you know, resulted in its changes to the Fed's asset portfolio. Uh, if you were to compare it before and after the crisis, because it was buying up corporate and municipal bonds. And so by changing the composition of that balance sheet, Omarova writes that, you know, they reflect the ongoing changes in the role of a modern central bank, not only as the nation's primary money modulator, but also increasingly as its credit allocator. The last, the latest crisis made it no longer possible to ignore the fact that the central bank's balance sheet is indispensable integrated platform for ensuring the functioning of a modern economy and not simply the back office support system for these private franchisee banks. Brings us then to the liability side, right? So the liability side here, the pandemic ends up having you know, a, a shift or the potential to have a massive shift, right? Because it pushes two new things, two new big ideas in policy debate, right? One is CBDCs, the central bank digital currencies. And two is having the ability for individuals to have accounts with the central bank. And these two ideas are connected to one another, but usually presented in ways that are mutually exclusive or piecemeal or not connected to one another, which is what she was talking about and what we talked about at the top of the hour when we said that the, the CBDC proposals are, are, in, in, are piecemeal. Right, um, Zomorova talked about, and, and as we talked about at the top of the hour, because they're really talking about transforming a, a specific aspects of the financial system um, or monetary system, and not actually thinking about what would we change about a payment system if uh, the payment system and the way in which the central bank does monetary policy, if we were rolling out CBDCs. I'll quickly say as well, they're often and almost always talked about as a in competition to like uh, other forms of, of banking or other forms of money. Uh, you know, in other words, it's like the, the central bank digital currency is just a, another good and service on the, 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 the free open market. Um, mm-hmm. rather, and by design, therefore, they are always, uh, Talked, you know, talked about as created in ways to make them less attractive uh, to the existing kinds of uh, of ways of dealing with currency and and banking and money. You know, in other words, ways that uh, entrench uh, and give the advantage to the existing financial system, rather than talking about them um, as a replacement uh, for that system. Yeah. Right. There's a, it's it's thought of like what to do in the age of the internet sort of discussions instead of what is a new like those discussion discussions end up usually being how can we add a digital gloss instead of how could we literally dig up the guts of the older system and figure out what works and what's rotted and what's useless and what's viable, right? And the CBDCs have been growing in popularity because, you know, of course, cryptocurrency has been growing in popularity because of the hucksters and grifters that have been pushing it. Um, uh, but also because of the growth of the platforms and exchanges on which it's traded, because of the growth of these alternative mediums that are attempting to integrate crypto, whether it's through NFTs, whether it's through 
uh, metaverse uh, and it, and its promise of microtransactions, uh, you know, at every step of the way, or um, you know, and, and and the attempts by Facebook now named Meta to roll out its own, you know, CBDC as a way to uh, achieve like an entrance into the financial system and and get out of advertising as a primary. Uh, you know, revenue giant uh, revenue stream, right? There are lots of there's been lots of buzz and interest on CBDCs, driven largely by the success in the private uh, in, by private actors, and also then again by central banks growing increasingly interested in them. You know, and, and as she talks about there, this this betrays a sense of simplicity that is not actually there right because it's not simply that we should be thinking about oh do we replace sovereign money with a digital form it's you know what is the infrastructure that's going to be behind it how is it going to be provided how is it going to be used you know how are we going to be thinking about privacy how are we going to think about transparency how are you going to be thinking about when you're able to use it or when it's available to be used you know all of these are questions that are kind of left out of the mainstream discussions, though they may occupy some of the minds of some of the more ambitious central bank technocrats or, you know, Facebook, um, you know, right, uh, planners, I guess. But, you know, she writes, economically, CBDC may be universally available, retail or general purpose, or restricted to only financial institutions wholesale, be interest-bearing or not, be subject to quantitative limits or unlimited, and have varying levels of convertibility into cash or bank deposits. Finally, choices related to the provision of CBDCs concern the allocation of roles and responsibilities between central banks and private financial firms, right? So this is all to say, right, that we cannot simply kind of mindlessly walk into it. We should, and it will require uh, really smart and involved design if you if we do pursue digital sovereign money, right? And if you do, if you are making these conscious decisions, right, then one set of concerns that we should have is that, you know, who is it going to empower? Is it going to be designed in such a way that it can expand and sharpen central bank, you know, uh, monetary policy toolkit, as she writes, by allowing them to manage interest rates through the interest on the CBDC deposits? Um, or are we thinking that maybe it should be used to compete with other currencies, as you talked about, Jason, right? Or displace commercial bank deposits? You know, what are the what are you know? What range of reforms are we interested in? How far in the radical and in, in the uh, changes to the system uh, and to how monetary policy is transmitted do we actually want to go? But all of the discussions have largely been centered on the idea that we need to have it connected to commercial bank money um, in one way or another, right? And that everything will go along fine, and CBDCs will be offered as just yet another. Um, yet another, you know, uh, form of deposit, right? But ignoring kind of all the complex questions that come up in this. So, you know, moving on from the CBDCs, right? You know, the, the, or moving on a little bit or building off of that discussion of the CBDCs, right? We need to, you know, as Omar Ovar is, is, is kind of arguing here, think about how to make CBDCs presented or structured or thought about in a way that um, doesn't fall into the interest of existing financial institutions that are interested in ensuring that we have a CBDC that's 
universally available, but not structurally disruptive um, and doesn't have too much time or energy spent on thinking on the complex nuance of what the design choices would be. That Instead, we have it as integrated into a system where we have universally available deposit services among one or the other. As, as uh, Omar Ofer writes, you know, millions of Americans, especially in poor and minority populated communities, had to wait a month or more f- to receive paper checks from the federal government. This logistical problem brought into sharp relief and excusable lack of a fast retail payment system and the unacceptably high human cost of being unbanked in the United States. And so we're Responding to this, uh, we we saw, you know, the kind of uh, debate about okay, what, what maybe we should expand banking, right? In March 2020, Sherrod Brown introduced uh, Banking for All Act. We tried to say that bank accounts would be available at regional Federal Reserve banks and the U.S. Postal Service, and that private banks would be, you know, required to quote offer pass through digital dollar wallets to individuals via separately capitalized subsidiaries with assets consisting solely of reserve accounts at the Fed. So get rid of the the narrow bank model, replace it with a new CBDC model that integrates this idea of banking, expanding banking to more people, to everyone, and also offering banking services or, you know, access to at least central bank money as well to not just individuals and households in crises, but households and businesses, you know, uh, going on and throughout. Going on from here, right, and talking, uh, one of the, one of the, one of the people that she hones in on is this guy, James Tuman, a Tubin, right? Who has this? <laughs> I don't know why I said Tuman. Um, who who who? Uh, right, quote uh, has the possibility of allowing individuals to hold deposit accounts in the central bank or in branches of it established for the purpose and perhaps loaded located in its post offices. And so, as the proposals come. When we're trying to debate how are we going to expand access to central bank money, they're all happening at the same time as the CBDC proposals. And they're also happening in a context where Tubin's ideas, where you have individuals with greater access to the central bank accounts and, and also or central bank money with accounts that are at regional Federal Reserve banks or at USPS offices, comes also at the same time as this democratized finance, finance for everybody sort of um, movement, right? Or this, or this uh, sentiment that spreads. And so you have all these, all these things coming in, into focus at the same time or, or coming to a head at the same time. A proposal emerges, uh, which Omarova will you know, spend a lot of time building up, the, for Fed accounts by, in 2018 by Morgan Ricks, John Crawford, Lev uh, Mandad in there. Idea was that you could have Fed accounts, you know, accounts to the Federal Reserve that'd be cheaper and more efficient rather than in a uh, replacement for private deposit accounts offered by commercial banks, right? Quote, as proposed, Fed accounts would have transactional functionalities of private bank accounts, save for overdraft coverage, but pay higher interest on deposits and avoid predatory charges. It would provide a money for payment safety net for the unbanked and underbanked American households and crowd out unstable privately issued deposit substitutes, right? But, Omarova says, you know, or well, Omarova is, is more saying, you know, this is a this is a convincing argument that if we get rid of that privileged access we talked about before related to the charter, that also creates these downriver odious effects where you have the where 
you have moral hazards that support speculative and risky enterprise, and you have secondary markets, speculative uh, speculation, and generation of risky assets that also create even greater concerns because now you have all these these fr- these rogue franchisees or wannabe franchisees pursuing and generating claims and pursuing claims for for bank credit, right? Instead of having all that shit, that what we could do is that by ending privileged access, we could provide this money more directly and get rid of a lot of the destabilizing things that are lurking just out of sight in our traditional system, right? So combining the conversations that are happening with the CBDC, combining it with the Fed accounts, that raises the an obvious question, right? Or, you know, I think obvious if you're, maybe if you're in the field, but maybe not obvious to us, right? But it's the, the obvious question from the argument that they're pushing, right, is what would or should happen on the asset side of the central bank balance sheet in order to accommodate this proposed expansion of central bank liabilities? Because you're talking about a massive explosion of it if you're now involving the ability for customers to po- deposit money and you're universalizing it, right, with through a digital dollar wallet and you're, you're, you're universalizing it through a digital dollar wallet and you're expanding access to that 22% of American households who are under underbanked. The the problem here, the core of the problem she talks about is to think about it as not really being an issue of expanding the portfolio, but looking at the composition of it, right? We need to be looking at thinking about what specific assets are purchased as a political act. And that quote, behind the veil of technocratic neutrality, central banks' investment choices have immense distributional choices. Perhaps not most, perhaps not surprisingly, most CBDC proposals either leave the composition question unanswered or reduce it to a simple quantitative recalibration of the traditional central bank asset portfolio. The latter typically involves increased central bank lending to private banks to replace their lost deposits and open market purchases of high quality public and private securities, right? So then leading us then, you know, thinking about and an understanding, I think, some of the opposition that come from libertarians and so a lot of capitalists right here, where, you know, the central bank is operating in one way or another as a as a guarantor of the of the status quo and as an inherently political but also ostensibly not political institution that preserves a certain arrangement. Uh, in the economy by investing in certain things and not in others, by having the powers to mitigate certain aspects of the economy and not others, and by only going beyond the bounds in the certain accepted channels that don't raise the possibility of things like this. If we're thinking about combining the CBDC measures and the Fed accounts, it needs to be, uh, we need to be asking, right, what are you know, if we're going to be offering this massive expansion, then the then the changes on the asset side need to be also thinking about the political impact of the investments. So, what sort of political choices and acts are we interested in pursuing on this end, right? As well as what are the political choices that are currently chosen, right? And what are the structures that protect them and preserve them and limit the ability of us to transform the balance sheet? Um, we don't have a lot of research in certain arenas as a result. And because of that, you know, there's all, you know, certain solutions are not pursued or even thought of when it comes to changing the asset side or connecting it to the CBDC and the Fed account models. And so we have technology today that 
could change the structure of the Fed's liabilities, as well as the dynamics of the Federal Reserve to the general public, individuals, businesses, public entities, municipalities, state and local governments, but they are not pursued for political reasons and ideological reasons and also for self-interested reasons, right? But if we do pursue these dynamics, especially if we had pursued them in the wake of COVID, if we pursued them to a limited extent in COVID-19 and we were able to save this broken, craning, like, you know, groaning system, then imagine what would happen if we made a conscious act to choose and pursue a certain set of political outcomes or to create a Federal Reserve and to create a payment system and to create a financial um, system where we could pursue these things in the name of needs and interests of individuals. Go. That's a that, that's more than an extended teaser for what's to come. That's that's giving, <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's giving you more than just a little amuse bouche uh, of what's to come. You got you got a sampler platter, uh, but for the whole meal, uh, <laughs> we'll get deeper into it in the Patreon episode because there's you know as Ed just laid out. There's a lot of really interesting proposals here. They're all linked together, you know because. Uh, Omarova is taking, you know, a deeper, deliberately unified approach to democratizing the central bank balance sheet. You know, thinking about the interactions on the liability side, on the access side, thinking about, you know, universalizing Fed accounts, you know, using central bank digital currencies, doing all of this to democratize access to financial services. But then, of course, thinking about, well, what, you know, how could we then take that democratization of financial services and redeploy it for even further socially beneficial uh, purposes and ends and goals, you know, on the, on, you know, so there's a lot going on here, highly interesting stuff. And so come along with us, patreon.com slash this machine kills uh, for Part two of our deep dive into the People's Ledger, a new blueprint for the Fed Reserve and the democratization of finance and money, uh, and and uh, we'll 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 be getting de- we'll be getting into that on the Patreon on the premium feed. So find us there, uh, and until next time or until then, later. Adios. Adios. Adios.